everybody. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. Today, we are joined by Kyle Cheney. He is a senior legal affairs reporter for Politico with a focus on January 6th and the aftermath of what happened on January 6th. He's also covered Congress, presidential elections. I have personally found that his reporting is absolutely indispensable. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us and passing judgment with us. Of course, great to be here and thank you for those kind words. So we're going to jump right in and I want to ask you to address something that I hear about all the time and it feels to me like maybe a little bit of a misunderstanding, which is we're recording this in March 2022 and I think people feel like maybe the committee's work is moving slowly. I'm wondering if you can address, is that what's happening from your perspective and maybe just a high level, what is the committee up to right now? Because I know that they indicated that they wanted to wrap up by early spring. Spring happens on Sunday. So I'm hoping you can give us a little, where are we? Sure. It's a, it's a misconception I hear all the time that this committee, the committee is taking forever. You know, we all saw with our own eyes what happened on January 6th. So how hard is this to figure out? Well, it's extremely hard to figure out. Is There's so many layers and complexities to what they're investigating And to be honest, on the scale of congressional investigations and even criminal investigations, this is moving at a blazing speed. They only established this committee in late June, didn't really get up and running until September in terms of staffing up, hiring the right people to conduct this investigation. And since then, they've moved as fast as I've ever seen any investigative committee move in Congress to just rack up and amass troves of information. I think what's frustrating to people is so much of it's happening in secret. And the reason for that is sort of double-edged. There's no minority, uh, you know, active minority on the panel trying to sort of frustrate their efforts or slow it down. And because of that, the committee is able to do more and do more the way it wants to, but it also means they're not being compelled to release things periodically, as we've seen with previous investigations, for example, impeachment investigations, where you had periodic releases of transcripts, people coming out of the, the meetings and telling us what they were up to specifically. So we know they're learning a lot. We know they're making major headway in some of these avenues of this investigation, but we don't hear as much about the specifics. Uh, And so when we do, it's going to hit with a much greater impact than had we been learning little dribs and drabs along the way. I think that's such an important reminder, which is that they're operating largely in, in a way in private. And so we don't have this constant update, even though obviously it's not a grand jury, it's not a courtroom. But, and it feels, I think in some ways, like this should be more public because it's Congress. Mm -hmm. But I heard you say something that I thought was fascinating, which is it might have more impact because we don't know that much. Do you have a sense of what we might see in the report if there's anything we don't already know? It seems to me like we saw actually much of this play out before our eyes. Mm I think that's true. And I think maybe in broad strokes, we have a sense of what you know happened even behind the scenes with what was happening in the White House uh, on January 6th, what was happening in the run-up with Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the election results. Um, but I think there's a lot of very vivid details that can be filled in here about just who was saying, I mean, they, they want to get down to the minute, even to the second of, you know, what was Donald Trump doing on January 6th? And they're piecing together 
text messages of advisors, emails. They've gotten troves of information from the National Archives. They've interviewed hundreds of witnesses, um, including some we never thought they would get access to. We don't even know how forthcoming these witnesses have been, but some of them apparently have been very forthcoming. So when they piece this together, it's going to be a really granular narrative um, that, again, we've only seen the broad strokes of, and it's going to tell us just how aware Donald Trump was of the violence as it was unfolding on the 6th, just how pernicious the efforts to overturn the election were beyond what's already known. I just think it's going to fill in a lot of sort of really eye-popping details about the bigger picture things we already understand. Okay, Kyle, now I'm going to ask you that unfair question, which is, given what you just said, you know what I'm going to ask. Do you think that there will be a decision by the committee to say, we're going to make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice that they should press charges against former President Trump? I have trouble imagining any other outcome than that because they foreshadowed it so completely. Now, they're very careful to point out that we're not a criminal entity. That's not our goal. Our goal is to produce policy recommendations and changes to ensure that no future version of January 6th ever happens again. But they've made no secret. I mean, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, they put some court filings out where they indicated they think Donald Trump may have committed three specific crimes including uh, you know, conspiracy to obstruct Congress and the transfer of power, essentially. So unless they have some revelation in, in subsequent interviews that say Donald Trump is not culpable, that seems to be the direction they're heading in at you know, pretty full speed. Now, you mentioned filings recently and talking about how you think the direction is, and I, I agree with you being uh, not nearly as close as you are, that they do seem to be saying we've found evidence of behavior that would rise to the level of criminal wrongdoing. Now, recently there was a fascinating filing dealing with law professor John Eastman, who worked at Chapman and is potentially, this is one of the threshold questions, you know, potentially acted as former President Trump's attorney, and therefore there may be some attorney-client privilege that attaches to their discussions. But the committee has this filing where they say, based on evidence, we have a good faith belief that the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege applies. Now, I thought that was actually stunning, and maybe I just haven't been paying attention closely enough, but how big a deal was that particular filing dealing with something that you know maybe doesn't light people on fire, which is evidentiary privileges. It's true. Well, that, this speaks to the point we talked about earlier, which is the committee has operated in such secrecy that this represented a massive disclosure of evidence that we hadn't seen before to prove that they think John Eastman's attorney-client privilege is bogus, his claims are bogus. They uh, unloaded a whole bunch of excerpts of their interview transcripts with people, you know, in Vice President Mike Pence's inner circle, uh, you know, his chief of staff, Mark Short, his counsel, Greg Jacob, and several other people they interviewed to say, well, we think that John Eastman, first of all, was soliciting the vice president to commit a crime to violate the Electoral Count Act. And second of all, we don't believe that he has proven or shown enough evidence to even suggest that he was legitimately representing Donald Trump as his lawyer. And so if both of those things are true, they want the judge in that case, David Carter, who's out in California, to essentially say there is no attorney-client privilege to any of Eastman's dealings with Donald Trump and give them a whole new trove of information. And what's important here, too, is 
that the context is all about disproving the attorney-client privilege claim. So they weren't trying to show that Donald Trump committed a crime necessarily, except in the narrow sense that they want to get past Eastman's privilege. So when they want to try to make the actual case against Trump, you know, a criminal referral, there may be a lot more than just the evidence they put on this court docket. You just mentioned that this case is ongoing before Judge Carter. Uh, Full disclosure, when I was a federal judicial clerk 100,000 years ago, I worked down the hall from Judge Carter. And Kyle, I'm wondering if you could remind us in a little bit more detail, there was just some news out of Judge Carter's courtroom. Where exactly are we on that case? You said quite rightly that the threshold question here is, is there even an attorney-client relationship? And then the second question, if there is, is there an exception to the privilege that would attach? I know there's been some fighting about how quickly to review documents. Mm -hmm. Could you update us on where we are in that particular case? Sure. So so I'm awaiting eagerly uh, Judge Carter's decision on both of those questions. Uh, I'm surprised in a sense that it hasn't even hasn't come out yet because he's been so fixed on helping the committee move quickly. He's recognized the urgency of what they're doing, repeatedly sided with them uh, on some of these questions. And now for the last week, he's been sitting on arguments that they made in a hearing before him about you know whether to waive this privilege or suggest it doesn't exist in the first place. And while he's been thinking about how to rule on that, uh, John Eastman uh, has been reviewing thousands of pages of his emails and teeing them up to potentially disclose them to the committee. While, while Judge Carter has been you know, thinking about this, Eastman asked him if he could you know, slow it down a little bit. He said, I've been reading 1,500 pages a day at your order. I'd like to slow that down to you know, 750 or 1,000 pages a day because you know, I can't do my day job. And uh, so Judge Carter has actually agreed to that, let him go down to 1,000 pages a day, which he estimates will complete the review by sort of mid to late April. But the committee is sort of, because of the time scale that they're on, a little concerned about that slowdown. I was actually surprised by that slowdown in part because of everything you said before that Judge Carter has been so mindful of the committee's work and the committee's timeline. I, like you, am waiting to see what Judge Carter says. And I want to stay on, because it's been obviously such a huge issue when Mm -hmm. it comes to the committee, this idea of subpoenas and who's, we talked in the case of John Eastman, whether or not he's going to comply with a subpoena. Let's talk about this big question of who else might get a subpoena and specifically, where are we on subpoenaing fellow lawmakers? So this is a question and the committee has very assiduously not taken a formal position on it. They say we're still reviewing that question. Can we subpoena fellow lawmakers? Should we subpoena fellow lawmakers? But they have signaled increasingly clearly that that's probably not what they're going to do. I think they believe they can do it. Lawmakers have been subpoenaed in the past by the ethics committees. It's not unprecedented, but there's little recourse to enforce a subpoena against a fellow member of Congress. The committee is worried about the timeline that they're operating under, that even if they do subpoena someone, if there's a fight, it will take way too long to resolve And so is it even worth going down that road? They do want to think about the precedents they're setting for if they lose the House, the Democrats, that they may get some retribution uh, with Republicans in the majority. So I think they they may not want to go down that road unless they think they're guaranteed to win and that it's worth the fight in the first place. How much of their work you think is 
playing against the backdrop of knowing that so many of the subpoenas that they may or will issue are going to end up in a potentially protracted legal battle, Mm -hmm. which I guess is a way of asking, how much is knowing that the new normal is not this process of reconciliation, but this process of, I'm going to fight you in court and I'm going to drag it out, even (laughs) frankly, Mm -hmm. in my view, even if I don't have a good legal claim, how much of that has affected the committee's work? In a huge way. I mean, I think we're at close to two dozen lawsuits against the committee uh, fighting their subpoenas, uh, whether it's for phone records. There's some people are suing the, the phone company to say, don't don't you dare give over my records. And some people are suing the committee directly to, to block their own testimony or documents from having to go over. We've heard in recent court appearances, Doug Letter, he's the House counsel, and he argues all these cases for the committee, has said, you know, we're at a point now where there's so many lawsuits, we're having to decide which ones do we really want to even bother to fight. You know, we have to prioritize here which ones we want to really go all the way with, uh, you know, in terms of the the evidence that might result if we if we win versus which we might put lower on the priority list, given the limited resources of the House Counsel's Office and also, you know, again, the the value of the information they might get at the end. And the, the one thing they're signaling in all of these fights is we have so much information, sometimes the stuff we've subpoenaed. We don't need it anymore because we're getting it from other sources. We're getting the other end of those phone calls from certain people's records. People cooperating are telling us things about, you know, witness X, Y, and Z who's suing us. So we don't need their their direct cooperation anymore. And so that's why they're sort of, you're seeing these tiers of lawsuits develop, which and Eastman is at the top of that, which is why they're fighting that as hard as they are. Let's talk about another lawsuit or another legal, more legal wrangling, I should say, over these subpoenas, which you said at the, you know, top tier Steve Bannon. He's mm-hmm. been in the news, former White House advisor, then left the White House. The January 6th committee obviously has subpoenaed him, asking for his testimony, asking for records. He said no under what I think are fairly dubious legal claims, and he just refused. So that's different yes. from, I'm going to fight you in court. He just said no. The House Select Committee and then the House voted to refer him for criminal contempt charges to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice said, yes, let's move forward. And now there was just some news this week. Could you catch us up on what is happening and are we ever going to hear from Steve Bannon? Well, I think that when the committee referred him for contempt, that sort of was an acknowledgement. They'd never actually learn what he was going to tell them. Um, it's more because content, criminal contempt of Congress, as the committee has pointed out, is, is meant as a punitive response, not a coercive one. Meaning if you really want someone's testimony, you, t- you file a civil case where you have the judge order cooperation, essentially. But those can take a very long time. Criminal contempt is more about you're not going to help me, so I'm going to punish you as a deterrent to other witnesses in the future who might be thinking the same thing. And, and, you know, Bannon is less likely to talk while he's facing criminal prosecution, except maybe if he wanted to settle somehow and say, drop the charges and I'll talk to you. But that doesn't seem to be in the offing. Congress has a very poor record of winning contempt of Congress fights when they've been referred to the Justice Department. Their cases either don't get brought or if they do get brought, they're very easily rejected or overturned. They don't make it to the end. It's very rare. So the fact that the Justice Department charged Bannon at all is kind of remarkable, and especially how quickly they moved on the committee's referral. It took three weeks between the referral in October and the charge in November uh, of last year. 
And now Bannon is essentially fighting to say, well, as a former White House advisor who advised President Trump, even in a non-official capacity, there may be some executive privilege here. And so when I refused to cooperate with the subpoena, it was because of my lawyer's advice that there was executive privilege. And DOJ said, we're not buying that. A, A subpoena is simple. You either show up or you don't, and you didn't show up, so we're charging you little different than, than the history of how DOJ has handled these in the past, but that's the line they're drawing here. You're exactly right. He didn't say, I'm pleading the fifth. He didn't say, you'll get this information, but that not that information. Or he didn't even show up to say, I think that's covered by executive privilege, which again, I would add, I think is a dubious claim under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. But you said something that I want to follow up on, which is that Part of what the House Select Committee is doing here and saying we're referring this situation for criminal charges for contempt of Congress is they're trying to signal to other witnesses, this is what could happen. Do you think that they've been effective? Are there people who have complied with subpoenas who maybe would not have if they hadn't made this decision with respect to Steve Bannon? The, the committee certainly thinks so. I mean, I've talked to their members quite a bit, and they, they say they think that was a pivotal moment for them. And for people who are similarly situated as Steve Bannon, people who are not in the White House at the time of January 6th, you know, they've also referred former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows for criminal contempt, uh, and DOJ is still sort of sitting on that referral, presumably reviewing it. And that's a more complicated case because he was the active Chief of Staff to the President at the time and actually had some limited cooperation with the committee, gave them a lot of text messages and emails, and the committee felt his cooperation still wasn't fulsome enough and he refused to come in for a deposition. So they did the same thing, and DOJ has not moved as quickly on that as they did for Bannon. So I think the committee has seen an impact when it comes to people a little bit further away from Donald Trump than Meadows was. People in the, you know, the Mike Flynn category, people like Alex Jones, you know, some of these people have pleaded the fifth, but they have shown up, they have talked, and they're trying to avoid that fate that Bannon is now going through. Well, I didn't think actually we would have time to cover this, but there is some because the news never stops and it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant. There actually is some Michael Flynn news this week as well. And Michael Flynn seems to have raised a bit of a white flag. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what's happening with respect to him and the January 6th committee? Yeah, so it's interesting because he's emerged as sort of a key player in this more shadowy part of the the, uh, narrative, the pre-January 6th narrative involved in encouraging Trump to, you know, invoke martial law and seize voting machines and this much darker side uh, with a different set of people than the ones who were, you know, than his allies in Congress, for example. And the committee subpoenaed him and he sued to block it. And then suddenly it seemed kind of abrupt. He actually came in, even though his litigation was pending and he pleaded the fifth. So apparently he didn't answer much of substance and then he dropped his lawsuit. And my understanding is his lawyers believed that they were going to try to hold him in contempt or, or somehow enforce the subpoena despite the ongoing lawsuit. And I'm not sure why that was persuasive to them, but it did cause them to have him go in and, and at least make his appearance before they escalated it any further. This really is like the news cycle that never stops just with respect to this one issue. And I want to ask you one more question with respect to the committee. Obviously, there are also separately, there's parallel litigation where 
there are trials going on and there's been one trial that just completed. But one last question with respect to the committee, who is Salesforce and why are they fighting about subpoenas? So Salesforce, and this is sort of an interesting twist in the last couple of weeks. They are a top vendor for the Republican National Committee. And we just learned because the RNC sued that Salesforce received a subpoena from the January 6th Select Committee in February. And the subpoena was for a whole bunch of internal documents related to the RNC. It was particularly post-election, after Donald Trump lost, essentially, all kinds of metrics related to their fundraising solicitations, the performance of those solicitations, internal analyses of, of you know the sort of political strategy of the RNC. Um, and in the committee's view, it's to find out, you know, how much did the post-election messaging around, you know, stolen election, voter integrity, election integrity, false claims about the results, um, how did those things perform? Because a lot of messaging out that came out of the RNC and the Trump camp then was the election was stolen, the election was illegitimate. And they want to know what role did the RNC's messaging play in ginning that up and maybe causing some of the fervor that was behind the eventual violence at the Capitol on January 6th. And so the RNC is, is, you know, really, you know, enraged saying you're, you're just, this is an opposition party trying to get access to our sensitive files to learn about our political strategy, way too broad, way too expansive. And the, the committee saying, no, we need to understand how much this played a role in the violence. Right. And of course, um, no politics enters into these arguments whatsoever. Now, you've given us so much helpful information on the committee. I want to focus a little bit for a moment on the trials. And there's something that you tweeted just a few moments ago. And you said, a judge's ruling may jeopardize DOJ's second January 6th trial and highlights a lingering mystery that the Secret Service says is too dangerous to resolve. Where precisely was Mike Pence when rioters stormed the Capitol? So let's start with what is the judge's ruling that might jeopardize the second trial? So this is uh, Judge Trevor McFadden. He's a Trump appointee on the district court, and he ruled Friday that the defendant in this case, his second trial, his name is Cooey Griffin, the head of Cowboys for Trump, can grill a Secret Service agent about where Pence was during the bulk of the riot when he was ushered to a secure location. And this is important because many of the charged rioters, including Griffin, say that in their view, Pence may have left Capitol grounds even before they got to the building. And to them, that's important because the charge they're facing, entering or remaining in a restricted area or restricted building, depends on whether the, a Secret Service protectee was in the area. Now, the, the DOJ doesn't accept that interpretation of the law, but that's the argument the defendants are making. And the judge essentially said, I actually think there's some merit to that. We need to know, was the vice president in the restricted area at the time the defendant entered the restricted area, and and that that's important. And this could bear on a lot of cases, but the judge is allowing that to go forward. And the reason I say it jeopardizes the case is because I'm kind of wondering if DOJ is going to push it forward, if they're even going to go to trial, uh, knowing that they could lose on that issue or have a Secret Service agent say, I'm not going to answer that question because we don't want to reveal sensitive information about the vice president's escape routes out of the Capitol. So you mentioned 
something when you first started talking about the case, you said a, the judge is a Trump appointee. And you followed a lot of these cases. And I'm wondering if in your reporting, do you see a difference in how they're being handled based on whether or not the judge was appointed by a Democrat or appointed by a Republican? Or do the judges seem at this point, again, on the trial level, fairly consistent in their rulings? I know, obviously, different defendants, different Mm -hmm. facts, but are you seeing a big schism just anecdotally based on the sample size? I'd actually say no. Um, This would be the second trial period. The first trial was also happened to be presided over by a Trump appointee, Dabney Friedrich. And, and, you know, I would say it's very limited. I think McFadden, who the judge in the Cooey Griffin case, has been a little more skeptical of the government than the other judges on this court. But there's four Trump appointees on the D.C. District Court. And I would say for the most part, they've been ruling in, in a very similar way as the rest of their colleagues. They've, for the most part, agreed that the government's charges against the alleged rioters are legitimate. Judge Nichols is the exception. He's one of the Trump appointees. He uh, ruled recently that some of the obstruction charges actually don't withstand some scrutiny. But yeah, I would say in terms of we've seen a lot of plea deals and sentencings. And I would say on sentencing, they're pretty much all in the mainstream of the seriousness with which they treat this. They've all rhetorically said what an awful and existential threat the riot and the insurrection was to democracy and to government. So they're kind of, I wouldn't say there's a partisan distinction there uh, among the judges for the most part. That's been my experience too, just reading the reporting, which is that there doesn't seem to be a big division. And I, I always think that's important for people to remember that particularly on the trial court level, particularly when it comes to some of these issues, the decision is not made simply because of who appointed this person to the bench. So that's one of my pet peeves. Thank you for going down that road with me. Now, before I let you go, I want to talk about the biggest story happening right now, which is what's happening in Ukraine and the Russian invasion and how that relates um, to the first Trump impeachment. Now, you tweeted earlier, Republicans are shocked, shocked that anyone might question their consistency after they largely excused Trump for denying key support to Ukraine, yet are now reaming Biden for moving slowly. I know that's a slightly different issue than how does the first impeachment Mm -hmm. affect what's happening now, but can you remind us, can you give us a little bit of background on what was that impeachment about and how is it echoing now in the atrocities that we're seeing play out in Ukraine? So, yeah, and I, and I appreciate you bringing that up because, you know, in some ways, what's happening in Ukraine now is horrible to watch. And it's something that it's not the same thing as what was happening a few years ago when Trump was in office. But, you know, I've heard from a lot of Democrats who say, look, what Trump did in terms of his relations with Ukraine kind of set the stage or even potentially emboldened Vladimir Putin even baited him into believing that the West was not going to be united in support of Ukraine if he invaded. And what happened was back then, which wasn't that long ago, but feels like ages ago, Trump essentially conditioned military aid to Ukraine and maybe more importantly, a White House meeting with the newly elected president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, um, on 
commencing some politically motivated investigations of Joe Biden, his son Hunter, and of Democrats in the DNC. Um, and that's what the substance of the first impeachment was. Trump was ultimately acquitted in the Senate there. He got, there was one Republican who voted for, and that was Mitt Romney. And that was it. And our goal with the story was to show Republicans who are now very critical of Joe Biden saying he's not moving fast enough, he's not helping Ukraine enough, even though he is helping them, he's not helping them fast enough, who were relatively silent or maybe had some mild critiques of Trump when he was literally withholding aid. And again, this White House meeting that Zelensky really, really, really pleaded for while they were still, you know, it wasn't this wide scale war, but they were under siege and the eastern region had been invaded and Zelensky was fighting and Ukrainian soldiers were being killed then too. So it's just an interesting juxtaposition now. You see the sort of pivot and the swivel from Republicans on that. Kyle, sticking with what's happening in Ukraine for a moment, I know that some Republicans are giving the president actually high marks. And I'm wondering what you're seeing in terms of what the perception is of how he's actually handling this versus maybe what's being said publicly. And therefore, what's the difference between how people really feel about the president's handling versus maybe what they're saying to us? Sure. You know, I think there's the the knee-jerk political line, which is, you know, the Republicans will always find a way to criticize a president of the opposite party. You know, so you're hearing a lot of that. It's, you know, not moving fast enough to help. But I think either reading between the lines or seeing some really explicit comments from people like Senate GOP leader McConnell, they're not as harsh as you might expect. They're actually somewhat in agreement with how Joe Biden is handling the situation. I do think there's, in some cases, they want to nudge him a little faster, but they don't disagree with how what he's done. They don't want World War III. They don't want him putting troops on the ground in Ukraine. They might want him to move faster on getting planes and other sorts of weaponry to Ukraine, but they generally think he's doing the right thing and he's soliciting their input in a way that you know, I'm not sure they were used to in the Trump era. And so I think there's more willingness to hold some of their fire or pull their punches a little bit than you might normally suspect. And I think it's also a recognition of the gravity of what's happening there, too, that there needs to be some united leadership on this. So yes, some knee jerk, some stuff, some pot shots, but less so than you might expect in this polarized era. Kyle, you spent so much time reporting on all of these issues. I'm wondering if I can ask you, where were you on January 6th? How did you become aware of what was happening that day? So, uh, I, you know, my, I was not one of my colleagues who were in the building that day. Um, I had been covering the lead up to the 6th, uh, tracking you know, President Trump's lawsuits in court and his ultimate effort at the Supreme Court, the Electoral College process. Um, and uh I was actually two weeks away from uh, my, my second child being born. So I was kind of avoiding the capital and, and the, the COVID risk at the time. So I uh, watched from remotely and wa- watched sort of in horror as I could see this escalating. And I remember reaching out to colleagues and, and making sure they were being safe because I don't think they realized inside the building just how bad things were outside. You could tell it better from TV than you could in the halls. Um, and I even some colleagues were sort of incredulous at the stuff we were describing until you know, the building was overrun. Um, and so, you know, I'll always uh, think back and, and, you know, in some ways I'm glad I wasn't here. In some ways I, you know, it was hard to see, think of my colleagues being there while I was sitting at home. Um, but it was quite a vantage point to watch for and to be, to be tracking it from. I, I think this brings me to 
my other question, you said that your second child was about to be born. I love your Twitter profile picture because I think it really speaks to what a lot of us are living now, which is that we're professionals, we're working, we also have childcare responsibilities, and we might be doing those things at exactly the same time. And so I want people to be able to follow you on Twitter at Kyle D. Cheney. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that picture. Yes, that's uh, I think that was during the second Trump impeachment, actually, about a month after January 6th, while I was still working from home with the newborn. And uh, she is uh, sort of in my arms while I'm navigating the uh, multiple crises that were going on at once and trying to you know, having covered the first impeachment, it was important for me to help helm our coverage of the second impeachment. And so that was just, as you said, the realities of working at home, family and childcare responsibilities, pandemic precautions at a very perilous time for the country as well. Kyle Cheney, thank you so much for passing judgment with us. I learned a lot and I know that our listeners will as well. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You can find Kyle Cheney on Twitter, as I said, at Kyle D. Cheney. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and sometimes on TikTok at Levinson Jessica. Again, I'm so glad that we get to share these conversations with you. And I wish all of our listeners a great day. 